are listening to the Barbara May Show, the place where we discuss all that really matters. We will cover all you need to know about lifestyle, health, spirituality, and plus so much more. Are you ready? Let's dive in. You are listening to episode 35 with Irene Leon. Irene is a somatic experiencing practitioner taught by the founder of Somatic Experiencing, Dr. Peter Levine. Irene completed the touch skills training in somatic resilience and regulation training. She studied the work of Dr. Marish Feldenkrais, a founder of the Feldenkrais Method, a system designed to promote bodily and mentally efficiency and well-being by conscious analysis of neuromuscular activity via exercises that improve flexibility and coordination and increases ease and range of motion. In this episode, we will talk about trauma. How do we identify trauma? There are so many people out there who have been through many different types of traumatic experiences and may not even be aware of it. Why some people are more resilient than others and how can we become more resilient and feel safe if all that we feel is fear, anxiety and restrictions? Let's dive in. Hello, Irene. Welcome to my podcast and welcome to my show. So excited to have you here today. The question I ask every single guest who comes mm-hmm. on the podcast is what are you grateful for? Well, what's really top of mind right now is I work with a wonderful osteopath and I just saw her this morning. And so I'm feeling the gratitude from her helping my sacrum and spine feel a little more aligned. So that's like really top of mind. But I would say right now, more macro are just all the good people in my life that I yeah. connect with. And whether it's friends, coworkers, folks like you, my students. Something about this year, we keep growing those connections. I yes. connect with women. Like yeah. I have never connected with women as much as I do right now. And it's cool. very empowering. Love it. Very, there's, very well, good. there's, 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 the, there's a rise of that feminine energy. Right. And I'm by no means a feminist and by any means in that respect, but that, that empathetic connecting to the earth, grounded healing grandmother energy, just wisdom is, is really, I think, I mean, this is my view, but it's bubbling up in a really good way. And very nurturing, very caring energy and very suddenly no competition. I don't know if you have noticed that, like if you like kind Mm -hmm. of tap into the energy, I absolutely love it. And um, and yeah, exactly what you said about um, the masculine energy. It's not about feminism and I am a woman and I am no. amazing, but it's, it's just, I don't know, it's all about the balance, but it's just so beautiful. And I love those connections. So so I am grateful to have you here today. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, so I would like you to explain what is trauma. And how do we identify it? There is a huge amount of people who have experienced several traumatic events throughout their lives. And majority of them are not even aware of the damage that is left behind. So it's a very tricky question. (laughs) But how do we explain what is trauma? How do we identify Mm -hmm. that we have been through traumatic events? Well, there's sort of three pieces to this. So I'll start with the first piece that I often start with. And that is that in a kind of a medical world, we might say someone's had a trauma or a traumatic event, or there's a trauma surgeon 
you know, at the hospital, all these hospital shows we all love and watch. It's like, oh, they're in the trauma wing, trauma surgeon. And so that to me is valid. Someone has a broken arm. They need to go to the trauma unit, get fixed, blah, 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 all that. What's interesting is that just because you have a traumatic event or I'll talk about injuries right now, car accidents, falls, concussions, bad accidents, just because you have something like that does not mean that it will be traumatic afterwards. So we, most people I think now know what PTSD is. So post-traumatic stress um, disorder, um, post-traumatic stuff. Um, just because you have a scary event occur doesn't mean that you will suffer from post-trauma. So I'm just going to plant that seed for a moment. Um, the other definition of trauma in my field. So I come from a more somatic body-based movement. Um, I was trained in quite a few methodologies. One is somatic experiencing, which is the work of Dr. Peter Levine. Um, another is somatic practice, um, the work of Kathy Kane. I like to mention my mentors because I didn't just come up with this on my own. They see trauma as something that is stuck within the nervous system. We can define that if you want in a second, mm -hmm. something stuck in the autonomic nervous system, but it also can be stuck within all of the tissues of the body that the autonomic nervous system connects with. So the cardiovascular system, so the heart, um, the respiratory system, the lungs, the brain structures that, that um, send out signals that we're under attack or that we need to, need to go into a shock state. The immune system is governed by stored trauma in the nervous system, that the fluids, our movement, our fascia, our fascia, however you say it, the muscles, but also, Barbara, how we connect and how we see the environment around us. When something bad and scary happens to us, and it can be physical, like an accident, as I mentioned, it could be emotional, it could be abuse, like mental, verbal, verbal abuse is the right word, let's just say. It could be sexual abuse, it could be um, physical abuse, it could be seeing something vicariously. So there's actually something called vicarious trauma. This is very common in the first responder world in people that have been to war, doctors who see stuff all the time, you know, in front of them. So there's like a, there's this whole spectrum of things that humans endure, survive and move through. And how we come out the other side is dependent on many factors. And if our system isn't equipped to deal with these intense events, surgeries, abuses, accidents, wars, environmental disasters, you name it. If we're not equipped to bring that stuff in, understand what's happening and feel and process everything that's occurring in our physiology to the point where we can name it and go, oh, I'm having a reaction to this X, Y, Z. I'm going to st stand here and sit and feel it and process it most of us don't have that luxury, not because we don't want to, we just either A, weren't trained to do that, or the thing, like think about a car accident, it happens so quickly, you don't have time to process what's going on. Or someone on the war field, this is why um, that classic PTSD was kind of coined after the Vietnam War, shell shock after the first big wars, the, the major wars, um, two and one, 
when someone is put into an explosive situation, say on the battlefield, it happens and they, they know it's happening when it's happening. So they can't process the event. And so how we process these big, big, bad, scary things that occur to us will determine whether or not we are traumatized by that said thing. Now there's one more piece and the other piece well, there's more than one, but a big one is depending on how resilient and healthy said human is going into this traumatic experience, how healthy they are to begin with will determine greatly how well they manage, integrate, feel, heal, and release that trauma. And what's occurring in our current civilization, if you want to call it that in the West, especially, is many of us were not properly raised to be resilient and to have strong, robust, auto, um, autonomic nervous systems, which then trickle out to all the other systems in the body. So and I'm being very general here, of course, um, Barbara, but when you start out without good foundation as an infant and even in utero and even transgenerationally through our ancestors, we won't have that resilient capacity to bounce back from events because some people will experience horrendous abuses. And while they might have a little bit of, let's say, PTSD afterwards, that's very acute they end up being okay. You know, their, their, their immune system doesn't go into an autoimmune failure. They don't have panic attacks and anxiety attacks. They might be a little shook, shooken up for a bit, but then they come out of it. Whereas others will have the tiniest thing happen to them. That seems like not a big deal. And then their lives are ruined. So that's a very long winding way of saying, this is what trauma can be defined as this is what some instances it might be. And it really depends on how it sits in the person's system, what the effects are after said event, abuse, shock, et cetera, happens. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And I also wanted to ask you, why are some people more resilient than others? And, and do you think that is due to upbringing only or? Yeah, it's kind of that nurture and nature debate that I think, is kind of an ongoing thing. I think there's enough understanding and research out there and just experience with humans that we can confidently say nurture and nature are equally important. And in some studies, they have found that the nurture, which is our environment and how we're cared for. And some people I've even, I just recently heard yesterday, someone called it, um, uh, nature, nurture, and neighbor, I believe, which to me is also nurture. It's who's around you, right? We know that how we are raised will greatly impact our ability to be what's called self-regulated in our nervous system. And so if you take a child that's a newborn, when they come out a mom, they are not able to self-regulate. They are not able to take care of themselves. And we know this humans, you don't have to have a child to know that a human baby or baby, when they come out, they're not walking. They're not talking. They don't know how to feed themselves. They can't do any of that stuff. They are very, very dependent on a primary caregiver. They don't know how to regulate their emotions because they're brand new. And so how they learn that 
is via something called co-regulation with a primary caregiver. Usually it is the mother, but it can be a nanny. It can be an older sibling. It can be a grandparent. It, it can be any human, but how that caregiver is regulated in their nervous system will greatly determine how well they teach the little one how to be regulated. And this starts the story of how people will say things like, oh, it runs in the family, or she's just like her mother or just like her father. Um, and genetics, you know, there are definitely traits there without a doubt, without a doubt. I also believe in a soul. So there's also the soul element to that. That's something that I've been really interested in the last kind of five years. And people will say that they'll have two uh, siblings that are pretty much even identical twins. And while they look the same genetically, they just have different personalities. And then you go, well, is that related to how they were treated? Usually not, especially when they're super identical. So it's like, well, there's other aspects there too. But how we are raised in those first, really it's the first three years of life, Barbara, and also the, the last trimester greatly influences how we develop something called myelination. Not sure if you're familiar with that, that word, myelination of our nervous system. So basically our uh, autonomic nervous system has many, many branches. One of the branches is the parasympathetic nervous system. And like right now, as I talk to you, I, we can see each other and I can see that you're nodding and you're blinking. And um, if I was to make a funny face at you or stick out my tongue, you know, you, you start to kind of smile, right? So that's our, that's our autonomic nervous system. Um, this is a very fancy word, pinging off of each other, mm -hmm. um, talking to each other through something called the ventral branch of the parasympathetic. It's part of our vagus nerve. Lots of people have talked about the vagus nerve, but often it's not talked about properly and accurately. Part of our parasympathetic nervous system is, it, it is this vagus nerve. When we're born, this ventral portion that we just played with by me smiling at you and sticking my tongue out at you, it's not fully developed and it's not fully myelinated. It gains that through healthy interaction with primary caregiver. And we know if a baby is left alone and not interacted with, they can die, um, but they also will not have that spark. They won't have that interest. You have to talk to them just like an animal. I saw a cattail walk by you a second ago, like animals, mammals need interaction. If they're left in a cage, and not interacted with, that's not so good, especially when we know this with animals that have been abused and left alone in kennels, they're not so friendly, or they're very, 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 very scared, very anxious. It's no different with a human. And so we have mammalian physiology that needs that co-regulation, especially in those first three years of life to build that myelin, which is basically a fat sheath around the muscle, around the, sorry, the nerve cell. And by building that myelin, um, basically myelin, if you think about it, it's made of fat. And while this isn't necessarily accurate anatomically, think of the fat as slippery and quick. When you have myelin around these nerves, it makes the signaling more accurate and more precise. If we don't get that good nurture, so back to that nature nurture, that good connection, 
our myelination, our development of that ventral vagal is going to be lacking. The reason why that's important is that aspect of that nerve, that parasympathetic, that ventral vagal, it directly goes to the heart, to something called the SA node, and that the real word for that is sinoatrial node, and it, it's the pacemaker of the heart. And so that ventral goes to that and it, it, it calms it down in a slow, refined, easy way. So someone who can be in a real stressful situation, real stressful, and they can chill calmly, they can assess, they can see, they can see the people, interact with the people. Hi, what's your name? Let me help you. Even though there's a lot of stress going on, they access that ventral and it helps their heart calm down, which then in turn calms down the other person's heart, right? That's what good bedside manner is in the medical world. Resilience is built into us regulation from those first few years of life. I haven't gone into the fight flight pieces. I started with more of the social engagement, but the autonomic nervous system, which I've just been talking about from that social perspective, it's also what puts us into fight and flee and shock and freeze. And so if you have a baby that comes out and their mother or their nanny or whatever is by biology, more anxious, more unsettled, more fearful of what's going on, you know, lots of situations, that little one, that baby is going to learn anxiousness. It's going to learn the energy, the field of fear and worry, and that the world isn't safe. And then that baby in turn is like, well, the world isn't safe. It's not a cognitive cognitive thing. It's totally energetic. So I will stop there because I could keep going on many different tangents, but does that make sense regarding how we build our regulation? Yeah, absolutely. It's very complex, but yes. very magical. I find it absolutely fascinating because everything is just connected. Mm-hmm. So how do we identify a trauma? If there was a hidden traumatic event in the past, like for example, someone has been in abusive relationships um, and didn't think that he was abusive relationship, walk away, moved on, and is with a different partner now. And suddenly this something, which I'll let you talk about, will pop up. How do we identify that the person was through some traumatic event or went mm-hmm. through, through some traumatic event? Sorry. Keep that thought. I'm going to add one thing and then I'll go to what you just asked. Some of us know we had a lot of abuse because we saw it happen. It was our household. It was our family. Maybe we were that kid that was in and out of hospitals every week because we had leukemia and we survived, right? Like I I need to put that in there because a lot of times people think trauma is just abuse, accidents and war. It can be being very sick when you're little. It can be your mother being sick or your father being sick or so many other things that have nothing to do with direct abuse. But people often know if they have been in that abusive world, then they know, okay, so there's that one telltale sign. There's a few that there was trauma and there's, let's just say unhealed trauma in the system is let's just say the relationship example you gave someone who finds themselves in toxic, abusive, doesn't have to be physical abuse or sexual abuse. It could be just you're with someone and you don't, you, you can't express yourself 
for example. Now, this is where it gets tricky, Barbara, because you could have two people who really do love each other and like each other, and their trauma patterns and histories are totally different. How they were raised was totally different. And then you get them in a situation where they really want to be with them, but their their upbringing, their triggers, how they were regulated or not regulated, how they were attuned to or not attuned to or misattuned to or all these things, it like they start butting heads. And so it when you're with someone, it's really important, in my opinion, if you know you want to stay with them and they're interested in learning, you have to dif- differentiate between what is your stuff with that partner and what is your old stuff because of how your dad treated you or your mom treated you or your ex-partner treated you. And then same with your partner. So you have all these different situations. Um, so one way that we know that we have unhealed stuff is that you just can't resolve certain things. Like things keep bubbling up or we always will feel um, afraid to talk, afraid to express. Um, as simple as this one might be, if you have trouble expressing bodily actions in front of your primary partner, and I'll be really descript, like farting and burping and expressing, I need to go to the bathroom. And these things that are just so natural in our physiology, when we feel intense shame or like we have to hide or excuse ourselves, because our culture has been so rife with saying that that stuff should be excused and you do that privately. But that is one way that we know that we've been a little bit traumatized in a very weird, insidious way with just our biology. That's definitely a great example. I think many people can relate to that because that's one of the most common ones, isn't it? (laughs) I use, I, you know, it is one of the most revolutionary things because it actually ties into one of the things that I teach my students when I first start working with them, it might seem not like rocket science. However, if we can't express those general elements of our digestion um, and our basic biological needs, that is actually putting a strain on our autonomic nervous system because our digestion just runs how it runs. Like when we drink something that has carbonation, we can't help but burp. You know, a lot of people do a lot of, everyone's system's different, but you can't say to that system, stop that. You have to stop producing gas. But we've been taught, especially through that kind of aristocratic culture, be proper, sit with your legs together, don't burp, don't fart. And, you know, if you have to do something, you excuse yourself and you, you spray it with air fresheners if nothing ever happens. <laughs> right. It's a very strange thing. And while it seems silly and I kind of laugh about it and you laugh about it and we can all laugh about it, it shows how, how conditioned we are to not feel ourselves. And so if you're in a relationship and that primary ability to express that stuff can't be out, we have a bit of a problem because how are you going to cry when you're sad? How are you going to be okay with your child screaming at you because they're hurt for whatever reason? Um, How are you going to be okay when your husband is having a meltdown, not because of you, but because of something that happened that day, re-triggered a memory from when he was young that he doesn't even remember, but it's causing all this emotion to come up. So I often say to folks, if you really want to heal your traumas and you don't even know what they might be, start with those basic biological impulses and honoring them and seeing how often you hold them in or you feel ashamed 
of them. And we teach kids from a very young age to be ashamed, to be ashamed of these things. You know, it starts as young as when a, a child, an infant is being changed, their diaper is being changed and the mother or the father or the nanny makes a disgusting uh, sound of, oh, that stinks. Like, oh, you stink. You just stink. Is you're, It's like, it's silly if you really think about it. It's like, they're just pooping and peeing. They're not trying to cause you harm. And how you interact with that bodily response will set the tone for that infant. And of course, human and adult being comfortable with their bodies. And I know the body image thing is huge right now, but it starts that young. I hope that makes sense. Another question what I have for you is how do we feel safe when all we feel is stress and, um, and fear and restrictions? Because I, I don't think, and, I, and I'm sure they agree with me, I don't think they were designed to restrict it. And actually nothing on this planet um, has been designed <laughs> to be restricted. Restrictions decrease mm-hmm. the life expectancy. Mm-hmm. So I really would like you to touch up on that topic because mm-hmm. this is a huge right now. Well, this is what's interesting. And this, this goes into what occurred to us when we were young. So if we, and again, I'm being really general here, but I have yet to meet a human of my generation and one before and after and my parents and grandparents who were raised with utter unconditional love and safety and allowance and protection. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't teach a child right from wrong or these things, boundaries are very important, right? So I want to put that out there because a lot of times I say that I'm like, oh, well, you can't just let a kid get away with everything. I'm like, I have nothing to do with that. This is that infant stage, that toddler stage where they're expressing themselves, where they're making mistakes. Are they being shamed when they knock over a glass of milk or are they just being taught, oops, that was an accident. Let's clean that up. Be careful next time, right? As opposed to screaming at the child and saying, how stupid could you be for breaking or spilling that glass of milk? Those two different situations create a very different physiology within a young infant Let's just say, and again, you're going to have your, your audience will have to extrapolate this into different things, but let's just say you were that kid that kept spilling your milk when you were young and smashing the glass on the floor. If you had a parent who ridiculed you and, and belittled you or smacked you or, or made fun of you in front of your siblings, you ain't feeling safe in that household. And your physiology is going to start to shut down and it's going to store that fight flight. And again, you know, an infant isn't going to spill their milk like a toddler might, where they're old enough to understand what's happening. They will start to change their physiology and their, their being to stay safe, to play it safe. They will, they will not just play safe at the dinner table. They won't, be exuberant and boisterous when they want to sing a, sing a song or dance a dance, you know, as kids do, they play and make believe and all these, they'll just start to become more introverted and more, more um, secluded. And I'm not going to rock the boat because I'm going to get shout out by mom or dad, or I'm going to get smacked, or I'm not going to be allowed to play with my dolls or whatever it might be. I'm giving you this example because that initial imprint tells us whether or not the world is safe or unsafe. And then of course, if we were abused, then of course that nervous system is like the world is a dangerous place. 
and I better protect myself. So I use that situation or I paint that picture because if we were in that situation where we were ridiculed, abused, weren't safe to be ourselves, we will be more likely to see danger and unsafety in the world, whether it's there or not. Take that further when there is danger and unsafety in the world that's real, or we're being tried to be pulled into unsafety and danger. If we were that kid that was ridiculed whenever we made a mistake, it's like we're going to be more susceptible to that said fear and danger, potential danger, potential threat. We won't have the robustness to be like connected to our bodies and be saying to ourselves, not cognitively, but cellularly, I'm okay. I'm okay. Like there's all this chaos around us, around me, but I'm okay. Actually, this is a great, so fun. This just happened today and yesterday. I live near the ocean here and there's lots of trees. I don't know what's going on with the owls, but I've seen two owls in the last two days. And the reason I know they're in the trees is the crows are going bonkers because the owl is literally, and I could find, I found the owl today just before we started talking and my husband and I were walking and we're like, what is going on with all these crows? They're just like going crazy. And we found the owl and I found the owl today and the thing's just sitting there, just solid. And, you know, the owl has the capacity for the head to turn and look. And I'm and like, you're just looking at this little, this bird going, wow, you are so grounded. And every time they would look around, the crows would go crazy. And so here you have this very solid owl and these crazy crows just going crazy. And the thing is just solid, right? So one could say that owl is under danger, but it actually isn't because it knows its ground, it's, it knows its territory. It's not doing anything wrong. It's just in the tree. That tree doesn't belong to the crows, but the crows are just going ballistic for whatever reason. And we're at a time of year where there's no nests, so there's no baby crows. So they're just, they're being, they're punk, they're being punks, right? They're trying to threaten that owl and get that out, but the owl's just standing there solid. And so if we go back to that thing about stress and fear, the more healed we are in our nervous systems, the more we've worked through our traumas, the less triggered we will be when um, stuff happens around us that is unsafe, scary. It goes back to that example I gave of someone getting into an accident and one person walks away and they're just fine and the other person walks away and they're a mess. It comes down to that base level resilience. I believe in how that person was before the stressors came in. So obviously you were saying that the people who are more resilient are the people who had a stronger upbringing. And if there is somebody who's listening and didn't have a strong upbringing, but wants to be the owl, how can they heal this trauma and how can they help themselves? How can they improve um, the nervous system? There's a lot of factors. And so I'll just list them and they're by no means in in order of importance um, because everyone's different. One of the more important ones, so I'll start at the top, is being able to stop identifying as a victim. It's (laughs) like, it is, this isn't just me either. This is my mentors who are very good at what they do. And I consider myself to be very good at what I do. When you see someone, and I can tell you, Barbara, I have sat in rooms with my mentors, such as Peter Levine, where they do demonstrations with people from the public and 
the abuses that some of these people have survived, often the class is just in tears. Like I'm getting shivers thinking about it right now. And you go to yourself, how is it possible that one person could survive so much abuse, so much bad luck, so much torture, literally, you know, torture. And yet they do. And they're there because they want to get better. And they're there because they know they deserve to not be sentenced to a life of this dysregulation. Now, are their systems really unwell and sick? That's another thing. A sign of trap trauma is chronic illness, autoimmune, heart problems, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, um, gut troubles, migraine headaches for women, severe menstrual disturbances, chronic tension. There's so many chronic illnesses that are seen as like only that, but there's actually a strong connection between dysregulation and unsafety early in life and this occurring. And so these people are so sick and yet they're so grateful for being there working with the master, getting a little bit of help that's going to give them a little dose of more capacity to move forward. So I can't stress that enough. Yes, one may have been victimized and abused, but you no longer identify as that. That's key. The second would be, um, and it kind of ties into that, is really believing that you deserve to heal. Because if you were that little kid that was berated every time you broke that glass of milk and you were shouted at and screamed at, that's shame. That would be called toxic shame. There's a difference between toxic and healthy shame. When you were brought up in a toxically shamed, shaming environment, your physiology doesn't believe that you have the right to be human and to be vital and healthy. You're basically walking around thinking you don't deserve anything because you were often told that. And so you have to really, at a cognitive level, a psychic level, but also a biological level, work towards restoring that like life force energy. I am, I am who I am. I deserve all these things and I'm going to do it. I think it's that's, huge. sorry. I think that's one of yeah. the very hardest one, the victimhood. Okay. But um, to admit that for many people, it's just, you can tell them. And like, I have so many clients and other people mm-hmm. I worked with and I really, really, really try, but it's so hard for them it's because so something hard. what is imprinted in them. It's very, it's, it's unfortunate. And that shows how strong, because usually if there's that level, if there's that level of um, defeat, it is physiological and it's in the body, it's somatic. And this is why general talk therapy, journaling, just doing more cognitive behavior-based stuff, while it has a purpose in some respects, it isn't enough because that, that toxic shame, it's not something that's done to you. It's what you register in your body viscerally. It gets into the patterns and postures of the system. It gets into how our stress organs release chemicals when we see certain things and the things that set off the cascade are not cut and dry. They're not cause and effect. It can be the craziest thing that sets us off. The next thing would be that the person is dedicated to learning more so than dedicated to healing. The reason why I believe we have such a hard time breaking out of that, that victim loop is it's physiological, but we treat it cognitively. 
but we also have to treat the cognition and the person has to be aware of how their mind screws it up, how the, the thoughts it's called interjects come in, which are like, oh, I'm never going to be good enough. Oh, I'm never going to get there. I'm always going to be abused. I'm always this. It always starts with a I'm always or I'm always going to be something like that. And so um, there's an importance of having a multi dimensional approach to how one works with this old stuff, this old nervous system stuff, because it's so hard to convey this in words. It's like a telepathic thing. I see it in like a hologram. It's like, we have to work with the full three-dimensional holographic orb of, of how we were brought into this world and how we experienced everything emotionally, sensorily, cognitively when we finally were able to have cognition how we felt the environment and how we interacted with people and if we don't get all those pieces we're missing part of the puzzle and so part of the work that I've really been passionate about and have put together is how can we the best we can provide that provide that canvas if you will so that a person can work on all these multivariate things and you can't work at all of them at the same time but you work with one piece and then you work with a piece and then you put them together and then you work with another piece and you incrementally get more um, skilled and masterful at becoming the human that you would have been if you had had that nurture that was top-notch so it's not about reparenting ourselves so much but it's about re not even for some people it's not even recreating it's creating for the first time a system that feels safe with all those pieces together yeah absolutely and I think a very important thing um, to say is that everything can be rewired it can right so it, well, it, well yeah. I'll, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna to protect my butt <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna make an extreme example um, I haven't worked with these individuals specifically, but um, a psychiatrist doctor by the name of Dr. Bruce Perry, he actually just co-wrote a book with Oprah. He is that psychologist, psychiatrist that's brought in when children have been found like in cages and neglected, that kind of thing. One of his books is even called um, the, the, the Boy Who Is Raised by a Dog, something like that. So if you have a human that comes out and they are severely neglected, no human interaction, no talking, no love, fed, not when they need it, like no light, that, in my opinion, that situation, and it, that cannot, that person won't, you know, won't be like you and I. But what's interesting is that if, there, if a human was brought up with abuse, but there was food and you went to school and you had clothes and there was a refrigerator and there was heat in the home or whatever, those basic things, even if you had ridiculous amounts of abuse, you can rewire from that, from what I've seen. But the extreme is that situation that Bruce Perry has worked with where these kids will never be able to be independent when they're adults as adults, like they will need constant care because they just didn't get that, that primary myelination of that ventral vagal. So there's, there's so many interesting examples. His book, Born for Love, for those that want to dive into some of those stories is so good. 
Um, I've actually done a couple of videos on some of the case studies in that because um, it shows how things can go really wrong, but it also shows how things can go really well when the right nurture and the right care is put in place. But if you are listening to this and you have an iPhone and you have food in your refrigerator and you've got a little bit of connection, yes, things can get rewired remarkably well. Thank you so much for all You're your words. You're Thank welcome. you so much for coming on my podcast. Yeah. My last question for you is where can listeners find you and get in contact with you? Yeah. So my name, Irene, I-R-E-N-E, Lion with the Y, no S. Um, just that that's my site, irenelion.com. There's a lot on that site. So don't be overwhelmed. Um, start with maybe the free resources, my vlogs on YouTube. Um, I have online classes. I have some courses, articles, and then of course, all the social media. I'm on it. Even Twitter I'm on. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. If you would like to get in contact with Irene, just dive into the show notes. All the links and social media handles are listed there. Please, if you could leave a review, I'll be very grateful. And I cannot wait to see your next episode. With gratitude, Barbara May.